Good evening. My name is Dan Peek. Welcome to the WDRT Monthly Review, a look back at this past month's news stories for October 2022. We hope you will offer your feedback by emailing monthlyreview at wdrt.org. I am recording in a studio at the Mead Public Library, Sheboygan, Wisconsin, 24 hours ahead of broadcast, which means I record on Thursday and history says things change in 24 hours. A new sweep underscores the challenge. The media is aligning behind predictions of a red wave in our midterm elections. The media is also aligning around expectations of a 2023 recession. Though on Thursday morning, the Federal Reserve announced a healthy 2.6% third quarter growth, with the economy reversing a drop for the first half of 2022 and spurred a ray of hope that Federal Reserve rate hikes to curb inflation might be tempered. And hey, we still have time to disappoint the pundits over the predicted red wave. Two items. First, in Texas, where anyone over 21 can now carry a handgun without a license, many in law enforcement are saying this leads to an increase in spur-of-the-moment gunfire. Who could have foreseen that arming everyone might result in more shootings? And finally, Republican candidate in Georgia for the U.S. Senate, Herschel Walker, faces a new accusation from another woman saying Walker pressured and paid her to have an abortion. Back to the planned broadcast, there are two major influences on our immediate political future. The second one is the U.S. midterm elections and a risk we collectively face with democracy as we know it. Many would welcome change, but few of us view authoritarianism as an improvement. And the first, speaking of authoritarianism, an update on Russia, President Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Last month, I reported Putin's threats to use nuclear weapons. Russia has sharpened the threat this week. Russian officials phoned their Western counterparts to announce Russian suspicions of a Ukrainian plan to deploy a dirty bomb. A dirty bomb combines radioactive material with conventional explosions to spread radiation over a large area. The foreign ministers of France, Britain, and the United States rejected the allegations as transparently false. The world would see through any attempt to use this allegation as a pretext for escalation. The United States issued this warning. State Department spokesman Ned Price said, We've been very clear with the Russians about the severe consequences that would result from nuclear use. There would be consequences for Russia, whether it uses a dirty bomb or a nuclear bomb. Ukraine requested the United Nations International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA, send inspectors to two Ukrainian sites named by the Russian accusation. One site was inspected only one month ago. The IAEA declared no undeclared nuclear activities or material were found there. Russia has suffered huge tactical setbacks in Ukraine in the last two months. I reported last month of Putin's sham annexation of Ukrainian territory and his mobilization of hundreds of thousands of conscripts. Russia sabotaged the Nord Stream pipeline, a major route for supplying northern Europe with natural gas. Northern Europe has been highly dependent on cheap Russian natural gas, but with the pipeline behind repair, other options are being accelerated. Additionally alarming, the pipeline has caused the largest methane leak that scientists have recorded. Methane has a ferocious potency as a greenhouse gas. Swedish authorities said Russia is pumping gas to the pipeline. There is no way to investigate or halt the leak. An explosion ripped through the crucial bridge connecting the annexed peninsula of Crimea to the Russian mainland early this month. It was a personal humiliation for Russia's president, who opened a $3 billion 12-mile infrastructure link by driving a truck over it in 2018. Russia has already been attacking infrastructure and civilian targets, but retaliation has ramped up with attacks on 12 cities throughout Ukraine. Russia fired more than 80 cruise miss missiles and 24 drones into Ukraine during morning rush hour, which President Vladimir Putin said was retaliation for the explosion over the weekend that collapsed part of the bridge. Ukraine's defense ministry said more than half of the projectiles were shot down, but dozens were able to strike Kiev and other population centers, killing civilians and damaging infrastructure. 
The strikes killed at least 10 people and injured at least 60, Mariana Riva, a spokesperson for Ukraine's police, said on state television. Russia's missile attacks on Ukrainian cities amount to war crimes, the EU said. Putin's goal is to destroy Ukraine's capacity to provide electricity to the country with winter approaching. The New York Times reported that Ukrainian police officers have so far logged more than 1,000 cases of people being detained in police stations and temporary holding facilities across the nation, said Serhiy Boltvanov, the police chief for Kharkiv province. The real figure is probably two or three times that, he said. Torture was routine, according to witnesses. The signs of abuse were already apparent in some of the 534 bodies recovered across the region, the police chief said. There are bodies that were tortured to death, he said. There are people with tied hands, shot, strangled, people with cut wounds, cut genitals. Here's one report. Russian troops spent weeks searching for Mariah, a 65-year-old common-law wife of a serving Ukrainian army officer. When she was eventually detained, they tortured her repeatedly under interrogation using electric shocks and threats of rape. In a word, it was a horror, Maria said. I thought I would not come out alive. Mariah was held for 40 days in a police detention facility where she endured hours of interrogation, electric shocks, and threats of rape and death. From her cell, she could hear men and women screaming in pain, men screaming so hard, I cannot describe it enough, she said, weeping. She said she understood from the screams that women were being sexually assaulted, though she says she herself was not. If they stripped me to my underwear, you can imagine what they did to the girls. Last week, Putin imposed martial law in the four regions of Ukraine illegally, annexed by Russia. And Kremlin-backed authorities in the Ukrainian city of Kherson are planning to relocate about 50,000 to 60,000 people to Russian territory, the Moscow-installed regional governor Vladimir Saldo said in a television interview. Ivan Fedorov, the Ukrainian mayor of Melitopol, called this a new manifestation of genocide in the occupied territories in an attempt to create an outpost of the Russian world in the south of Ukraine. Similar mass force deportations have been reported in other areas of Ukraine under Russian control, seemingly focused particularly on displacing Ukrainian children. U.S. President Biden said that Putin finds himself in an incredibly difficult position in which his only remaining tool is to brutalize citizens and intimidate him to capitulating. They aren't going to do that. And on the same news day as martial laws reported, there was this. Ukrainian officials have expressed shock over Republican suggestions that future assistance to Kyiv could be limited if the party wins the House of Representatives in November's midterm elections. Only a week later, the progressive arm of a Democratic Congress spared McCarthy further scrutiny by issuing their own statement regarding Ukraine, pressing Biden to pursue direct talks with Putin. A letter signed by 30 lawmakers said, we urge you to pair the military and economic support the United States has provided to Ukraine with a proactive diplomatic push, redoubling efforts to seek a realistic framework for a ceasefire. Many Democrats questioned the timing just before uh, midterm elections, especially given the letter it was written months ago. It feeds the notion of dem disarray and confusion. Former Congressional Progressive Caucus co-chair Mark Pocan, Democrat Wisconsin, told a constituent... The missive was written among different circumstances in July, adding, I have no idea why it went out now. Bad timing. Representative Pramila Jayapal, Democrat of Washington, released this statement. The Congressional Progressive Caucus hereby withdraws its recent letter to the White House regarding Ukraine. She added, the letter was drafted several months ago, but unfortunately was released by staff without vetting. Stifling discussion or poor judgment? My point, the media loves a story about Dem disunity. Imagine Dem disunity getting in the way of otherwise endless stories of Republican candidate for the U.S. Senate of Georgia Herschel Walker's foibles. 
Walker provides many horrible revelations, but it's hard to top Walker's former wife accusing him of holding a gun to her head and saying he was going to blow my brains out. Walker's son spoke out about his father's lies about all these random kids and paying a girlfriend to have an abortion encourage him to wear a condom. MAGA's stand in unity behind Walker, a candidate for the U.S. Senate. But the news is about a well-intentioned letter gone wrong because staff released it without vetting. Republicanism is moving far right from Trumpism to MAGA to white Christian nationalism. Republicans touted democratic socialism as the equivalent of communism or worse. But when Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene gleefully informs any who will listen that she's a white Christian nationalist and MAGAs are as quiet as can be, likely in silent agreement. What is stripping away a woman's right to abortion other than white Christian nationalist assault on democracy? Some candidates like Wisconsin MAGA governor candidate Tim Michels tried to have it both ways, run a primary campaign as a staunch anti-abortion candidate and soften their message for the general election. Michels was against any exceptions for abortion, including rape or incest, but now not so much against the exceptions. Do we care what he really believes or whether he is simply a craven politician? Fool me once. For those that suggested Trump would govern differently than he campaigned, it turns out the campaigning was the milder version. Why would I believe Michels or any other MAGA candidate would be more reasonable once elected? So what does polling say about competing messaging? Good news. New York Times Siena College poll shows voters overwhelmingly, 71% of respondents, believe our democracy is at risk. I don't know if this is good. 11% advocated taking up arms and civil violence as the solution. 71% say democracy is at risk, but only 7% agree it is the issue, and 39% of respondents are open to voting for election denier candidates, including 71% of Republicans. Top three issues, according to the survey, are the economy at 26%, inflation at 18%, and abortion at 5%. Hey, it's polling. 68% of respondents said government favors the elites, but roughly 50% of Wisconsin voters will vote for millionaires like our Senator Ron Johnson, who voted for a tax cut to greatly benefit himself over Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, the son of a Milwaukee teacher and United Auto Workers member. A millionaire MAGA governor candidate Michels over Governor Tony Evers, the former Wisconsin superintendent of public instruction. In a debate with Barnes, millionaire Johnson opined that a $7.25% minimum wage was plenty, just like he explains his vote against negotiating pricing for lowered prescription drug prices as taking money out of the pockets of the pharmaceutical companies, before going on to explain the disproven trope of trickle-down economics. As we've learned, the rich get richer, the poor and middle class don't benefit. And Republican candidates campaign like populists before going back to restricting rights and lowering their taxes. So given those voter priorities, is the Dem message on point? A New York Times headline from Tuesday offered, Fearing a shellacking, Democrats rush for economic message. I have criticized the Dem failure to promote economic accomplishments. Dems instead hope no one will notice inflation and count on continuing outrage over MAGA taking away a woman's access to abortion, a right that was codified by the constitutional law for decades. History says outrage fades. Maybe not this time, but it is also wise to remind voters that even without ongoing Federal Reserve efforts to cool the economy in the face of inflation beyond a report of 2.6% GDP growth, Dems preside over record low unemployment as a pre-pandemic levels in spite of inflation. Last week, in a true rare moment, Biden did tout the economic gains, reminding us that he set out to rebuild the middle class by building an economy from the bottom up and the middle out. He noted that since he took office, the nation has added 10 million jobs 
and has seen unemployment drop to 3.5% of 50-year low. In 11 states, unemployment is at all-time lows, and 17 states have unemployment rates under 3%. Pundits, pollsters, and Republicans are increasingly convinced this will be a red wave. If so, kiss democracy goodbye and learn to live with authoritarianism. And so Trump, still the elephant in the room. Sure, he's in legal trouble over you name it, has lies about a repeated refusal to return top-secret government documents, his leadership of January 6th violent coup attempt on our Capitol, his defamation of a woman asserting she was raped by Trump, election interference in Georgia, Trump and his children and his company sued for financial fraud in New York City, and more. The October-January 6th committee meeting concluded with a vote to subpoena Trump to testify. Wyoming Republican Liz Cheney said the central cause of January 6th was one man, Donald Trump. On October 21st, the committee issued the subpoena. We have assembled overwhelming evidence that Trump personally orchestrated and oversaw a multi-part effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election and to obstruct the peaceful transfer of power, the subpoena averse. We learned a few new things through that hearing. Trump ordered the military to be withdrawn from critical areas in Syria and Afghanistan because he knew he was leaving office, and any failures resulting from their removal would be Biden's problem. He was willing to create a huge crisis as he walked out the door, leaving it to someone else to fix and take the blame. Eddie Magamuth, January 6th was Pelosi's fault, exploded. Recorded by daughter Alexandra Pelosi, Pelosi is filmed stepping into the breach left by Trump's refusal to act and calling the Department of Defense, asking for military backup to help clear the Capitol complex. Also on video, video, she is seen reacting to the news that Trump was intending to go to the Capitol, the seat of our elected government, where presidents traditionally must not go without an invitation. Told he might arrive, she responded to her chief of staff, I hope he does. I'm going to punch him out. I've been waiting for this, for trespassing on the Capitol grounds. I'm going to punch him out. I'm going to go to jail, and I'm going to be happy. Our Senator Ron Johnson revised his August story about his role in the attempted overturn of the 2020 election after saying his part in the delivery of fake electoral votes to the vice president was only a couple seconds. He now says that he texted uh, with Wisconsin-based lawyer Jim Troopas, who was working with Trump to overturn the results of the election in Wisconsin for about an hour. He also downplayed the events of January 6th, again, as not an armed insurrection. But maybe the smarmiest, weirdest, creepiest thing I've heard was based on the release of interview tapes by author Bob Woodward as part of his book research about Trump, referred to as the Trump tapes. When asked about Trump's view of North Korean despot Kim Jong-un, Trump asserted, I'm the only one that knows. I'm the only one he deals with. Narcissism. But then he explains how what he calls chemistry works. The word chemistry. You meet somebody, you have a good chemistry, you meet a woman, and in one second you know whether or not it's going to all happen. You may not want to hear his voice, but you can only fully appreciate how chilling this is by listening to him say it. It is like listening to an interview with a serial sexual predator. I guess if it walks like a duck, sounds like a duck. Some interesting history regarding Trump's first impeachment. A few days ago, we learned that during Trump's impeachment trial, all the Republican senators believed Trump had broken the law when he tried to force President Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine to smear Hunter Biden before he would release the money Congress had appropriated to help Ukraine fight off Russia. According to the forthcoming book by political reporter Richard Bade, Washington Post reporter Karun Demirzian, Senator Ted Cruz, Republican Texas, had warned, out of 100 senators, you have zero who believe you that there was no quid pro quo. None. There's not a single one. But then, 
Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican Kentucky, kept the Republican senators behind Trump by telling them, this is not about the president. It's not about anything he says he's been accused of doing. It's always been about November 3rd, 2020. It's about flipping the Senate. The priority wasn't holding Trump accountable for breaking the law. It was holding power. Republicans, party over country. For refreshing change, let's consider an example of an effort to make politics fair for all. Fair elections. New Supreme Court Justice Kentaji Brown-Jackson offers her remarks in a hearing to consider yet more court gutting of voting rights with a lecture on originalism. History professor and blogger Heather Cox Richardson writes, Justice Kentaji Brown-Jackson brought an important new philosophy to the law when the Supreme Court heard arguments over Merrill v. Milligan, a voting rights case. The case concerns Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which, as summarized by the Department of Justice, prohibits voting practices or procedures that discriminate on the basis of race, color, or membership in one of the language minority groups identified in the act. In 2021, Alabama legislature cut the state into seven districts that crack and pack black voters. About 27% of the residents of Alabama are black, but they are either packed into one district or cracked into another, diluting their overall strength. The district court of three judges, two of whom were appointed by Trump, agreed that the redistricting violated the law and gave the legislature two weeks to redraw the maps to create two black majority districts. The state immediately filed an emergency appeal with the Supreme Court, which was granted, allowing the states to use the original map for this year's election. Alabama solicitor General Edmund G. LaCour, Jr. claimed that states must draw districts that are race-neutral. When Justice Jackson pressed him to explain, he turned to the 14th Amendment, saying it is a prohibition, not an obligation, to engage in race discrimination. Jackson then turned on its head the so-called originalism that has taken over the court. I understood that we looked at the history and traditions of the Constitution, what the framers and founders thought about, she said, and when I drilled down to the level of analysis, it became clear to me that the framers themselves adopted the Equal Protection Clause, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, in a race-conscious way. Jackson's approach was about more than this case. She brought to the court what has been called progressive originalism, or perhaps more accurately, legal analyst Mark Joseph Stern's term egalitarian constitutionalism. The Reconstruction Amendments of 13th, 14th, and 15th give to the federal government the power to protect individual rights in the states, and originalists' avoidance of them has always stood out. These amendments launched an entirely new era in our history. Scholars call it a second founding. More news about voting rights. Voter intimidation in Arizona. Over this past weekend, the Maricopa County Elections Department announced that two people, both armed and dressed in tactical gear, stationed themselves near a ballot box drop in Mesa, Arizona. They left when law enforcement officers arrived. At least two voters later filed complaints of voter intimidation, both complaining that they were filmed dropping off ballots. Maricopa County Board Supervisors Chairman Bill Gates and Recorder Stephen Reicher issued a statement, we are deeply concerned about the safety of the individuals who are exercising their constitutional right to vote and who are lawfully taking their early ballots to a drop box. Vigilantes outside Maricopa County's drop boxes are not increasing election integrity. Instead, they are leading to voter intimidation. Russia's new best friend, Saudi Arabia, a slap in the face to the United States and Biden, as well as an embrace of Putin, Saudi Arabia announced OPEC Plus cuts of 2 million barrels a day. The move by Saudi Arabia will boost U.S. gas prices within weeks of the U.S. midterm elections, an inflationary hit that will weaken Democratic chances of retaining control of Congress. The move will also help Russia's finances in its illegal and brutal war on Ukraine. 
Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is an autocrat's autocrat with no respect for Biden. Like Putin, he makes no secret of his preference for Donald Trump. There is no surprise here. Biden described Saudi Arabia as a pariah during his election campaign, a reaction to the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has said he does not care if the U.S. president misunderstands him. You know who sides with Saudi Arabia and Putin? Consider this Trump April 2020 tweet. Just spoke to my friend, MBS, Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, who spoke with President Putin of Russia, and I expect and hope that they will be cutting back approximately 10 million barrels and maybe substantially more, which, if it happens, will be great for the oil and gas industry. And now, in 2022, this month, Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, had a front-row seat at an investor meeting in Riyadh. Notably, no U.S. officials were invited to the Riyadh meeting. The same people to make sure our gas prices were high by demanding production cuts want you to know that Biden is to blame for this latest round of rising gas prices. Republicans, party over country. I will close with a roundup of additional important items. Climate. The International Energy Agency has said Russia's invasion of Ukraine will accelerate a peak in the world's consumption of fossil fuels with gas demand now expected to join oil and coal and topping out near the end of this decade. We're in disruption as the inflection point to something we've ignored for so long and we may be too late. Speaking of too little too late, Max Barrick for the New York Times opens his report this way. Countries around the world are failing to live up to their commitments to fight global climate change, pointing Earth toward a future marked by more intense flooding, wildfires, drought, heat waves, and species extinction, according to a report issued this past Wednesday by the United Nations. Just 96 of 193 countries that agreed last year to step up their climate actions have followed through with more ambitious plans. The world's top two polluters, China and the United States, have taken some action but have not pledged more this year, and climate negotiations between the two have been frozen for months. India, with a population of 1.4 billion, is among the worst water-stressed countries in the world. A report from the government's Niti Ayog think tank in 2019 estimated that 600 million Indians faced high to extreme water stress and warned that 21 big cities, including the capital of New Delhi, would run out of groundwater in a matter of years. With about half the workforce employed in agriculture, this poses a huge challenge, not just to farmers, but also to the country as a whole. China's iconic Three Gorges Dam across the Yangtze River is the world's largest power plant, but it felt eerily quiet this summer as scorching temperatures and the drought upstream reduced the reservoir and drastically cut its ability to generate electricity. It's part of a global hydropower crisis being made worse by global warming as as heat waves and droughts shrink rivers that feed reservoirs from California to Germany. And NPR reported today, saltwater intrusion could become a more frequent threat because of the Mississippi rivers being dredged so larger cargo vessels can enter, experts say, and climate change is not helping. Liz Truss. Why would I include a news, news of a resignation of England's prime minister after only six weeks in office? Because her party's conservative platform ignored the impossibility of running a government by lowering revenues, cutting taxes, while ignoring the rising costs of government programs like health and education, instead spouting a nonsensical, magical notion of making the rich richer and all will be good. That's right, another trickle-down economics failure. Trust led with cutting taxes, especially for the wealthy, while committing government money to pay for increased fuel costs following Russia's shutdowns of supply. The markets erupted. One simple measure, the English pound dropped from $1.30 to the dollar to parity, one-to-one. Markets were in turmoil. Truss blamed and fired her chancellor at the exchequer, the equivalent of our head of treasury, but it didn't work. 
Her own party forced her out of office and appointed her opponent from only weeks ago. Rishi Sunak had soberly campaigned by emphasizing the need to curb inflation before reducing taxes. Truss ignored common sense and left office in record time. Republicans will cut taxes every chance they get. They will benefit the rich immensely, but they are wily enough to give a few dollars to the low and middle class so they can claim that all benefit. Republicans preside over record deficits. Democrats manage to govern while reducing the deficit, just as Biden is doing now. The federal deficit fell this year by $1.4 trillion. This was the largest ever decline in the federal deficit. Last year's drop was $350 billion. The deficit climbed every year of the Trump presidency, including in the years before the pandemic. Trump and the Republicans added $400 billion to the deficit, primarily because of their $2 billion tax cut for the wealthy and for corporations. Trickle-down economics has failed for decades ever since Reaganomics. But Republican messaging stays consistent, tax cuts and guns, stances that make us worse off while convincing voters they are better off. Marijuana possession. Joe Biden has issued a mass pardon for all people with convictions for simple possession of marijuana under federal law and a major push for drug reform. Alex Jones, following the $50 million in court-imposed penalties in August, where a Texas jury uh, found him liable for damages that parents of the children killed. Jones still faces one more trial in Texas, but now a jury in a civil trial in Connecticut determined that conspiracy theorist Alec Jones and Free Speech Systems, the parent company of InfoWars Network, must pay $965 million to the families of eight of those murdered at Sandy Hook and an FBI agent who responded to the shooting. Tulsi Gabbard, it's official. Former Dem Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard announced she is no longer a Democrat. Given her appearances on Fox News and hosting of Fox host Tucker Carlson's show and her campaign events benefiting some of the worst MAGA candidates for midterm elections, that is not really news. I'll wrap up with these comments. There is an assault on our imperfect democracy that, if successful, will further selectively take rights away from targeted people and groups and install a white Christian nationalist minoritarian government. It doesn't have to be this way. I hope we disappoint the Republicans and the pollsters and the pundits. The November midterms will answer a lot of questions about where we are, where the U.S. is heading. Please vote, and thank you for listening.